should be a great morning as we, as believers, as the church, are reminded of the very thing uh, that we have been saved from. As you think about your own conversion, there are things um, that we have been saved from and obviously things that we have been saved to. And I, I love when I get to bring a message in, especially an epistle of the New Testament to the church, and we get to talk about those things that you are saved to, these good deeds and these works as a uh, love offering back to Christ. But also, it's also true that we see these passages where there is judgment, which of course in Revelation we see plenty of them, um, where it's not going to get better in this life for this world. That's not how it's going to be. Now, you might have a period of history of success or blessing or whatever it may be, but it's going towards a place where the true ruler of this age, who is Satan, um, is going to ultimately have a following where they will worship the beast as we've seen in Revelation. And we're going to be reminded this morning that not only are the blessed 144,000 who've been sealed, how they are delivered as this kind of offering to God as a first fruit, the contrast is going to be true as well as what happens to the rest of the nations. Do they repent? I suppose you might ask, and you might, of course, know already the rest of Revelation well and been reading along with me, and the answer is not going to be yes to that. But it is the question, what about them if you're the seven churches that received this letter and you've asked in a similar way of a previous, that interlude in Revelation 7, what about Israel? And he tells you about the 144,000 and then he says, the multitude of nations as well. Every tribe, every, every tribe, every tongue, every nation will sing praises and worship to the Lord. And here as well in this interlude section, um, he's going to address what happened to the 144 and he tells us and then... What happens to the rest of the world? Did they repent after all of these trials or before and what is previewed here? The coming bold judgments. That's the question that we are faced with. But before we look to answer that, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for our time this morning that we do have a moment to look together at your word, at your truth, to think about the way it impacts the way we live today. And we know from your word that the second coming, your son's return should drastically impact the way that we live today. So let us see those truths that should impact us not only today, but throughout the rest of our lives. And even after we're gone, if the church is still here and remains, and you have not raptured them, that these truths would be ministering to their hearts as well. So we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Most of the Bible is uh, written to an agrarian culture. So some of you, at least maybe a generation or two back, come from that culture, one of a farming community. I have to go back to a great, great grandfather, but I can get there, who farmed in Gretna, Nebraska. And he's the last farmer that I know that was a true agrarian. But we still have a football team called the Corn Huskers. We get the idea of sowing and reaping. And perhaps you've been out there with spring where you've been sowing seeds. And hoping and praying in this dry weather. Because if you don't have sprinklers, you are not going to grow any grass. But you understand the, the idea and the goal is I'm going to sow something, grass seed. And hopefully if the Lord wills, there's going to be rain. Or if not, you're going to intervene and throw some sprinklers. And hopefully water. And the idea is in three to four weeks or so, you're going to see grass seed, uh, grass seed sprout up out of the water. But over and over in the scriptures, you're going to see that principle, that idea. And it's not always referring to the same thing. It can be a good thing, sowing and reaping. It's, it's really the law of the, the natural world from the very beginning in Genesis that you put the seed out and it bears fruit. 
You see it as a means in which to communicate blessing that if you sow good things, there'll be a reaping of blessing. You see Matthew chapter 5, that there's a general reaping and sowing principle that God gives certain things like rain and to the whole world, to the just and the unjust. But it's also a law within the spiritual world. It's more than just the principle of nature. It's an axiom of life that we reap what we sow. Galatians 6 says this, verse 7, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. There are natural consequences for our actions. We understand that. A man is going to reap what he sows. The world operates on this. And Paul knew that God cannot be mocked. But it also implies what every good farmer knows. That there is a wait. Sometimes short, sometimes long. Before you see the fruit. And so it serves the church really well. In life, Because we know that there has to be patience for the farmer, even for the Christian, to see fruit from their labors. When the scriptures, Paul likens it to ministry, that you just don't know what you're doing. I don't even know what I'm doing this morning in the sense of hopefully the word is going forth. And that's why we preach the word. Because it's the seed that's being planted into hearts. But I don't know how God is going to water that heart or you in different ways in different churches and different people's lives throughout And ministry can be like that. Maybe it'll take a long time. Maybe it'll be short and miraculous. But we don't know is the point. We have to trust on uh, external circumstance like rain or the weather. We reap also in kind what we sow. This idea that if you plant an apple tree, you're going to get apples. You plant a peach tree, you're going to get peaches. Good fruit, you're going to get a good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit. Galatians goes on to say in 6 8, whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction, and whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. What you see in there is that it also refers to this idea of it can be a positive principle and a negative principle that you're going to reap good things with good actions and bad things with bad actions, positive, negative. We're going to see that here in Revelation, but also proportional. That is, the rule would be the more seed planted, the more fruit harvested. The idea of multiplication takes one seed, but you can grow multiple heads of corn. Well, as we look at Revelation chapter 14, we see this idea of reaping and sowing. Because you're going to see the, the sickle come out multiple times here if we can get through the, the rest of this chapter. We're definitely not getting to 15. That was way too ambitious on my part. But if, if we can... See this in in action. I think it's such a helpful principle to see. Because you're going to go from a human standpoint. Why so much judgment? Well, it's because not only has the earth in general, but humans sowed over and over evil and wickedness and all of these things. It's the sowing of rebellion against a holy and a just God. That we don't quite grasp because we don't have a good enough grasp on who God is, that we struggle with the penalty of sin being eternal damnation here forever and ever. Smoke, torment going up forever and ever in verse 11. We struggle with that because of not understanding and believing truly what we have done in in offense to a perfect and a holy God. And so we're going to see from the garden until now, all of 
that wickedness that has been sown, uh, the consequence is going to come for the entire planet. Yes, but for the people that are rebelling here. And you'd love to see that if, as we looked at um, the 144,000, that maybe their evangelistic endeavors were more successful, but it would seem they don't respond here. And the rest of the world, outside of the martyred saints who give us a reprieve of, to see, wow, there are those who believed who were martyred, who are blessed, even in this section, which is, praise the Lord, we have something positive here to look at. But we're going to see the judgment met out. Where we've been in Revelation, for those of you who have been here, we, we've seen the kind of general outline come from the beginning of the book that the things which we've seen, the vision of the glorified Christ that John saw, and then the churches, the audience in chapters 2 and 3. And we've been in this prolonged section now where we've seen the things which will take place after these things. And more specifically, we've been in the Great Tribulation, which I think carries itself pretty much all the way you could say for sure from six on, but even four and five, it seems that what's going on in heaven there with Christ receiving this deed for the earth, that it's the beginning of that judgment period being met on the earth. He's going to take back the earth. He's not coming as a savior. He's coming as the judge in this case. And so six or 18 is the great tribulation. Chapter six, we saw the six seals, which there's seven, but you only see six. And this is kind of a pattern. We see that the chapter 7 is an interlude, the, which I mentioned, the 144,000. What about Israel and what about the nations? They're there as well. The church is gone. I believe the church is raptured. It's one of the reasons they're not here. And even here, they're not addressed in chapter 14 because they're not going to be met out. They're not going to be there to receive the judgment. Rather, who is addressed is the 144 and the tribulation saints distinctively. But then you come back in chapters 8 and 9 and you see the seventh seal met out, which introduces, of course, that telescoping effect of the seventh seal includes the seven trumpets. The little scroll and the two witnesses. Or excuse me, the seventh seal, which includes the, the chapter 8 and 9, includes six trumpets. And then another interlude in chapter 10 and chapter 11, or at least the first part of 11, where you see the two witnesses and that little scroll and the seventh trumpet. But now we enter into 12, 13, 14, which kind of catches us up, which is this another, I kind of generally call it an interlude period, which doesn't have a reference directly to time. It kind of just backs away and says, this is more information you need to know to understand the rest of the book of Revelation. These visions are for John's understanding, but of course, so that he might write them so that the church might understand. And even those in the tribulation period would seem who'd come to read these, that they would have a greater understanding of what God is doing. And so why is this such a cosmic battle? Well, chapter 12, look at the nature. This isn't just man's rebellion against God. This is a cosmic battle from Satan's rebellion against God in the garden. And so chapter 12 details Satan's career. Then we get an introduction to in what way that he receives these keys that he's going to call out of the abyss, these demons, namely the Antichrist who comes out and the false prophet who deceived the world. And the world is tempted. Then we're made, we're creatures to worship. But they don't worship Christ. They worship the Antichrist, which has the appearance here in so many ways that we saw in 13 of Christ even bringing peace for a moment. But it does not last. And then in chapter 14 is a little bit of an encouragement, a reprieve, at least for those first five verses but not once you get to six. And really, I think of chapter 14 as a summary of the end. 
because he's going to walk you all the way through these judgments to where pretty much you're seemingly at the judgment of Armageddon. And then it's going to pull us back in 15 and we're going to be looking at the bold judgments. But these are going to predict the outcome, the consequence in chapter 14 of what's coming in the future. So it's a summary and then we'll get into the details of how that plays out in the coming weeks. So what we're going to see this morning is these announcements, announcements by angels. And so definitely you see these three angels give announcements, but in some ways you can see all of this as announcements. Um, There's five angels who give announcements. Technically, if you look at the two harvests or the harvest in the vintage, which I guess is a technical term for the harvesting of grapes for, for wine, you're going to see five of them. And then there is a voice from heaven in 13. So I'm just going to combine it all and say all six of these things are announcements. Some from angels, one from a voice from heaven, but they're announcements that encourage a fear of God and the sober reality of judgment. They encourage a fear of God and the sober reality of judgment. So how are we understanding this? We're looking ahead. I'm already arguing the church is not there, but yet this is written to the church that we would see this and it should have an impact on the way we see God the way we see our sin, the way we see sin in general towards a just and holy God and a sober reality that there is judgment coming. You could say maybe in there, some comfort though, a little bit like the little scroll um, that John ate, that it was bitter honey and that this is a very bitter reality. This is going to be a horrific event as it unfolds, yet it's also sweet in that he finally, the, the prayers of the saints that have been offered are answered here again as the the world is consummated and Christ returns and deals out judgment. Again, just the general overview of what we see here, chapter 14, before seeing specifics later on. The first announcement, though, is this announcement from an angel flying mid-heaven that he has an eternal gospel, verse 6, to those who inhabit the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he's going to say that angel with a loud voice, and it seems everything from heaven is loud, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. And so simply the first announcement is fear God and give him glory. And isn't it interesting that the way he describes God here is his hour of judgment has come. But who is he? Who do you worship? You worship the the creator. And so he is going to uncreate, as it were, his own creation out of judgment. He is to be reminded that this was always his, this world. He can do with his creation, and that includes you and I, whatever he wishes, because he is the maker of heaven and all things, the maker of heaven, earth, sea, and the springs of waters. I don't know if I'll ever get to, because it's seemingly, there's so many chapters we go through here that deal with judgment and deal with the new creation and different things that I'm not sure wherever it'll fit. Maybe it's a little too casual of a title, but I I really do want a sermon title with um, Demo Day, God's Demo Day. So if you guys watch HETV, and I know some of you do, and you watch it and you watch the Demo Day is the big day, they get the hammer out, they demo everything down. Because this is really what is happening throughout Revelation. It's, this is the demo day for God. That is, he is coming to judge and he is going to demo. Now, he's not demoing just to level it and tear it to the ground. It's all purposeful. He ultimately is going to renovate. He's going to make things new, a new heavens and a new earth. 
But I like that picture in my mind because it's what I've been thinking of in Revelation is that he is going to be involved in every aspect, even the demo, even the judgment. And that should cause one to fear. Interesting fear as well, goes back to verse 6, that it's related to good news. Well, what is, how is this good news? Well, he's proclaiming an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who inhabit the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And it seems like that eternal gospel, at least defined narrowly by verse 7, is this message. So it's good news that he's telling you there's an opportunity to fear him. And this is almost used throughout scripture as a way to communicate repentance. That you have a right fear to where you recognize your sin and you repent and you turn to him. And that is caused by you recognizing who he is and who you are and your desperate need for someone to between you and a holy and just God. But also in the broadest sense, of course, we know the term gospel, good news, this eternal gospel from the beginning, this message that comes. This message is not only the Old Testament that's kind of foreshadowed and we looked at different symbols this morning even in at least my Sunday school and you see how even the tabernacle represents certain things and certain aspects in the old covenant. This idea that we are sinners, we need atonement for sin and we need covering for sin. But the sacrifices, and I don't care if it's a lamb or any other thing, a bird, those aren't going to be lasting. But the distinction of Christ is his sacrifice was once and for all. And it is, of course, eternal the same gospel, that there is forgiveness for those who turn, who fear, who turn to Christ. You never get far from it in Revelation or any passage. We're to fear God and give Him glory. Fear God, why? Because the hour of His judgment has come. The unbelievers on the earth are called here. In view of the judgment, bow the knee. Give glory. David declared in Psalm 19, verse 1, that the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Generation after generation, Romans 1 has suppressed the truth of God being the creator. And yet the angel calls sinful man here to look at what has been made and to know the truth, to worship God, the creator of it all. So the first announcement there is simply fear God and give him glory. And that fear is going to flow because everything here should cause one in this text to tremble. And what is going to fall? The first thing is, he says, Babylon itself will fall. So John sees another angel, a second one following the first who has proclaimed this eternal gospel. And as much as the first angel's announcement was a proclamation of good news for the gospel, the second's announcement is a declaration of Bad news. He declares, fallen, fallen, which is a way of emphasizing, not just fallen, but fallen, fallen. It's, it's done. Fallen, fallen is the Babylon the great. She was made all the nations drink the wine of wrath of her sexual immorality. As I said, it's this emphasis on certainty that it has fallen once and for. All. God sees it as something that is already done. I think it's helpful to understand this idea of Babylon. If you look at Scripture, and we don't have time to trace it, maybe at some point, because it'll pop up more, and we'll see the details of Babylon falling in 17 and 18 of Revelation. 
But it's just this guarantee, this announcement from the angel, this will happen. Babylon is going to fall. But if you trace Babylon from the beginning, you see it first pop up at the Tower of Babel. Rebellion against God. Idolatry began with that building of that great tower and it reached its peak throughout history here at the end of history. Even think of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and building a statue to himself. The world has become consumed at this point, following after taking the mark, following after the Antichrist and the beast. They become intoxicated, seduced by the false religion. And so I think there is a reference here even to the city, but even towards beyond that, the system of Babylon. And this is the promise, this is the announcement that it will not last. And so it goes back to a cry to the people to say it's going to end. And you may think, oh, I just want to enjoy the ride as long as possible. The answer is that is foolhardy, that is foolish. No, rather recognize the Antichrist Babylon will not win. This picture here, and it's going to continue with this idea of alcohol or wine, of drunkenness, and that they drink the wine of the wrath of her sexual immorality. And then it's going to go on as the announcement of a third angel is going to announce this torment, and he's going to continue this imagery of drinking wine. Because he says it this way in verse 9, that another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And so he begins this section, through verses 9 through 3, by showing that what awaits those who worship the beast. It's torment, and you could say modified, a torment not for moments, not just to be annihilated as some would like to see here, but it is a reminder of what Christ has already said, that this is a torment that is a reaping of sowing, that is you're going to reap. What did you offend? You offended eternal God. What will you reap? An eternal punishment. And so torment awaits for those who worship the beast. And the picture is of wine. And so wine in those days, you try to get it to go a little further. You put water in it. You also use it as a way to make water uh, safer to drink. You all understand that when something's very strong and something's diluted. And he's saying they're going to get the full wrath of God. It's not going to be diluted at any level. And I'd say what the world experiences today, that's a good analogy. What do we experience I mean, you look at the news and you go, this doesn't seem like a very peaceful world, but it's still diluted. The judgment on our sin, you think of Adam and Eve in the garden, they sinned and what was the promise? If you eat of the tree of knowledge and of good and evil, well, the price is death. But it was diluted, you could say, because they didn't die right away. They died spiritually, but sin entered the world and they eventually did die. And of course, we inherited this. In some ways, you could say a diluted curse which is a little scary to see all the wickedness that we see and understand it's still diluted, but the time is coming when the full strength of the cup, they're going to drink all the rage, the wrath, the justice of God. It says the torment with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the lamb. In fact, 11 goes on to describe this, that the smoke of their torment goes up forever 
than ever, and they have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in the image, image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. And before the voice cries out, and it's kind of where 12 bridges, I'd say, this section, but we'll address it here and then readdress it with 13. But here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. That is to say, it's kind of in reference, not to the voice here, but in reference to saying there are those who didn't persevere and there are those who did persevere. And 13 is going to go on to say in a moment that they're receiving the very opposite. They had no rest in life. They had no ability to make money. These tribulation states, they're running ragged, but yet they will have peace forever, as opposed to those who ultimately will be judged with this terrible, terrible, horrifying fate that awaits them from the wrath of God. As I said, you see this, this endless kind of idea. It's where you come back to the reality of hell and that it is forever and ever. And even the word translated for torment here is a word that speaks of endless infliction, unbearable pain. Fire, brimstone are often associated with divine judgment. Jesus uses it. Sometimes you even see the the place where they burned in Israel as as a picture of it. But it is the place where unbelievers, those who decide not to worship Christ, and they, in this case, worship the beast, but even in our day, choose to not bend the knee, the scripture is clear over and over and over again, they will spend eternity described as the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. It really is as horrific, it may be more horrific because the judgment coming on the earth and the reaping there is seemingly, he's going to reap, destroy, people are going to die, but then it's over. But this isn't over, this is eternal, and so it's horrifying. And a call not only to the ones who believe this is true, to be about telling people the good news, that they can avoid that, but also those who have not bent the knee, have not trusted Christ, to run to him. It's interesting. We're told that the torment will be in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. There's always that idea, and there is a sense in which you are separated from a a true relationship with God, just like unbelievers are separated from God today. They're separated from God in certain ways, and hell, but it is to say he's not absent. In other words, there is his justice that is present. It's not as if Satan is ruling hell. No. God. The presence, the lamb, mercy is forever gone and they can see and understand it. It's horrific. John informs them of this truth. Angels are making this proclamation, and it's an encouragement. You don't want to be numbered among them, but rather run to the Lamb. Because those who have run to the Lamb, yes, they have not had the good life. These are understood here as the tribulation saints that have been persecuted over and over again. And yes, you saw the 144,000 were sealed. You saw the two witnesses that could call down fire. If people oppose them. But for the average tribulation saint believer, they're going to end up in martyrdom. And you see that they, though, despite the struggle and despite the pressure, they persevere, verse 12, and keep the commandments and their faith in Jesus. That is, they're not willing to sacrifice. They're not willing to sin. They're not willing to bow the knee and then try to 
go about it another way. And so you not only see that torment awaits for those who worship the beast, but you see fourthly here in verse 13 that he says, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. He said he heard from a voice from heaven, and so he saw the three angels, and now a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, and their deeds will follow them. This is a blessing that for most people is incomprehensible. How is dying good? Death is viewed as something to be avoided, not blessed. So how are the dead blessed? Doesn't sound like much of a blessing. Why is John giving us this here? Or is it being communicated to him in this vision? Why is the voice from heaven saying this is a blessing? Well, it's presented in two parts in that you could say they're, they're blessing because of how they lived and because of how they died. They persevered. They kept the faith. They kept the commandment of God and their faith in Jesus. That's how they lived. But also it's blessing because of how they died and remaining faithful. They persevered until the end. And so... This truth of perseverance for the saints is going to reveal that the death of believers is blessed because death is going to usher them into the presence of Christ. They're ushered in with no pain and no suffering. There's no threat of of torment or of death for them because of what Christ has done for them. There's no stronger evidence for the saving faith of those here than that they maintained their faith in Christ in the midst of what is literally called the great tribulation. A tribulation that we can't quite compare. You might think, and we often do, that life is difficult and it's hard and there are challenges and people who oppose, who don't want the same things. But it's nothing that they... Nothing like they have faced. They maintain their testimony even to martyrdom to the end. And so therefore he says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Not only the way they live, but the way that they died. The voice from heaven is responded to as well. Not only do you see the blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, But then there is a yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labor, so their deeds follow them. There is a seemingly a yes from God himself, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He's in full agreement with the heavenly voice saying that they are blessed. The Holy Spirit, known as the Comforter, knows their suffering is gone. They are also further blessed because it says... They get rest, which is the exact opposite of those who worshipped the beast. They might have had peace and rest for momentary, but here this is an eternal rest for those that they finally receive from their labors. And their deeds follow them. Their service to the Lamb, and we've kind of seen that a little bit here and there. We've talked a little bit about the crowns. They're not necessarily... 
crowns that we're meant to be excited about keeping, but there simply means in which we're going to say the Christ did this in me and I received this and I did this and I'm going to throw it back at his feet and they're going to have those deeds that follow them and they're going to cast it back down to Christ. There's a typical picture you see. Um, I heard it since I was little over the idea that there's not a hearse or not a U-Haul or a trailer, you know, being pulled by a, a hearse. But, and although you kind of go, okay, that's right. You can't take your stuff with you. But there's something you can take with you. It seems here that they take their deeds. And even if I think for the believers, not only these saints, but it is true that the way we live matters. And there is the judgment even for those who are in Christ. Not of one for salvation, but one for the way that we live. So blessed are those who die in the Lord. Fifthly, a fifth announcement that comes here is the whole earth will face a reaping. So the firing metaphor is back and it is one of reaping. We don't use sickles. We have combines. Um, but the same idea, you know, your combines are pretty good anymore. They're not going to leave a lot in the field. But if you were to use a sickle and you were to, to pull and to grab the kind of, imagine if you don't know what it looks like, a, a curved serrated kind of knife and pull it. That's the way they would harvest the, the tops of grain here. Nothing gets away from its path. The whole earth is going to face this reaping. Look at verse 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the sanctuary crying out with a loud voice to him who sits on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. So that's the knife. Pull, pull it out and reap it. Harvest it for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And then he who sits on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth. It's quite the picture. Over the whole earth and the earth itself is reaped. The Old Testament prophets, both Joel and Isaiah, spoke of a coming harvest of judgment. This is the language you see throughout the Old Testament. Christ himself spoke of a judgment that comes This harvest is one of finality. The Messiah has come and there is a final judgment. John's going to see two pictures of, I think, judgment here. And you might ask why two pictures. I think at least maybe from two perspectives. And one is this picture of a harvest from grain. And another one is from this grape harvest or this vintage that comes. They're two different pictures. And I think the first one probably foreshadows 16 and the seven bull judgments that come. And that's what's going to be met out. So the Son of Man is the one seemingly in charge who is pictured as wielding it and reaping. But he also does it through these judgments and does it through an angel. And so I don't think it's surprising then in 17 to see in similar light an angel coming out of the sanctuary who's in heaven who also has a sharp sickle because... The Lord has used his messengers throughout Revelation to accomplish his purpose and his will. And so you see that in the second half as well. And then I would say 14 through 16, dealing with more of the bulls, and probably 17 through 20, dealing more with the end, like thinking the end of the final battle of Armageddon. Well, you see this grain harvest here. There could be no one else. We've seen that. This is the lamb who is worthy, who sits on the cloud, who has the golden crown. It's interesting. This is the victor's crown. This isn't the crown of a king. 
If you look at the actual wording, this would be a crown placed on a victor. This is the victor crown that Christ wears, that he is the one who is the victor over sin and death and the rightful ruler of the earth. And the angel cries out, like I said, it's seemingly another announcement that you're going to reap because the time has come. Just as we saw Revelation 5 and 4, this is the time where Christ will conquer and take back what is rightfully his. And so the whole earth is going to face this. But also, the nature of it, which you get more details, 17 through 20, is horrific. And I mean truly horrific. You try to do the math on this, it's staggering. This harvest of the grapes or this vintage from the vision of the judgment of the grain harvest, you move to the vision of this grape harvest and it speaks of judgment. And seemingly the way it describes it, trodden outside the city, I'd say judgment that is culminated at this day, the battle of Armageddon. This vision is not one here of the Son of Man, but instead John sees this other angel come out. With the sharp sickle. And then verse 18, another angel, the one who has authority over fire, came out from the altar. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying... If you think back to the picture of heaven, some have talked about this being one of the angels who would serve where you know, the martyrs were there at the altar crying out. And the incense that goes up to the throne. Perhaps it's the angel from, from there. But he's now ready. The, the, How long, O Lord? And this is the final answer. Now, no more are we going to wait. But... He says, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles or bridles uh, for a distance of 1,600 stadia which is just another reference point. It's about 180, 184 miles from what we would understand of distance. And so it is absolutely horrific the way this looks. Because this describes that, well, what is he reaping? Well, it is judgment. What is judgment? Not surprising. It's on those who have offended, those who are bowed the knee, those who have rebelled against Christ. And it is comprehensive in its nature. And he's going to take them. The picture is like you would with grapes. And you'd be in an old wine press where you throw them down. And you'd stomp on them until out comes all the juices. And here they're going to be thrown in the great wine press of the wrath of God. And out will flow the blood out of the wine press. And the, the picture is of a horse's bridle. So if you just did the rough math, it's horrific. You say five foot high, depending on how tall the horse is. 180 miles. You and I have about 1.2 to 1.5 gallons. I use gallons because that's the way I think of because milk. Uh, of blood in our bodies. You do the math. It is horrific. In fact, it's in the billions. And so there's some that look here and it could be this is just meant to be hyperbole to say it is going to be so horrific you can't imagine. Because if this was even reality, I mean, you'd be talking hundreds of billions of people to equal this kind of blood that would flow. And it seems that it's flowing down all the way through Israel because that's about the length of Israel, 180 miles, and it flows down. It's absolutely horrific, the picture given here. Because there is no mercy, there is no hope. Yes, there is the gospel call at the beginning. Fear God, give him glory. 
But those who do not heed that call are going to be the ones who are going to reap the very thing that they sowed with their lives by unbelief. It's shocking. It's horrific. It's the bloodbath that we'll come to see later in Armageddon. But these, they refuse to bow the knee to Christ. And that's the reality, not only of death here, but even worse what we've seen, which is, that is, eternal death forever and ever in hell, away from the love of God. In these final 15 verses, we've seen these, these six announcements that encourage a fear of God and a sober of reality. Fear of God and to give him glory. The one angel announces the announcement, the certainty of the fall of Babylon, the torment that awaits for those who worship the beast and the blessing. So there's a little bit of encouragement one angel has that those who are faithful are blessed who die in the Lord. But then a horrific reality that there will be a reaping and it will be horrifying. It should be a reminder that today when we live, it is a day of grace. But what is true about the tribulation is true today as well. We're just in an earlier period of time where God's grace is still being met out. But the reality that God will ultimately judge sinful man is true. And that today is a day of grace. And that the invitation to trust in Christ is still open for those to accept the offer of forgiveness through grace. The reality of if you believe this truth... You can be forgiven and saved from the wrath to come. Otherwise, if you don't have one who's taken the judgment, which you see how horrific it is because of the violation of a perfectly holy and just God. Someone hasn't bore that for you as Christ bore it for us on the cross. Then you have to bear it yourself. And yet if you are in Christ, it should motivate you to live for Christ today as well. This idea of sowing and reaping. Christ comes. It's seemingly in his first coming, he comes sowing. Kind of flipping the analogy a little bit, but to say he's coming and he's planting seeds and people are getting saved and the church is growing and he is moving. And the day will come when he reaps and that is this day. The reaping is the second coming in general where the wheat from the chaff is going to be separated. You, I don't know everyone's heart here, but those who truly believe will be separated from those who not. The, the sheep and the goats will be Divided. And that reality should motivate us in the way we live. In fact, it says this in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. But why? This is why. The second coming is why. Verse 13. Looking. For the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Paul understood it. He's encouraging Titus in the ministry. Listen, we live in a time where the gospel is being proclaimed, not just to the Jew, but to, to everyone is the message here. That this idea of denying ungodly and worldly desires, which you might go, well, why am I avoiding fun in this life? Well, because there's greater purpose. It's better to be obedient to the Father. Better to be like Moses, to cast off the pleasures of this life, to be assigned with the shame of God's people. 
But you do so, why? Because you do so sensibly by looking at the coming of Christ. Because he's not coming to save. He's already come to save. That gift is open for those who believe. But he will return. And when he does, this is the reality. That he comes in judgment. And it should motivate for us not only to live godly, but then as well motivate us to be sharing the good news of the gospel with others. Because this is what awaits. And it's not, there's no do-overs. There's no second chances. Everyone loves a good American story when you can lose something, you can lose your wealth, you can lose your house, you can lose your fame, you can lose your business, and you can go build another one. But this is a finality most are not used to. And the trick is, life will lull you to sleep thinking, I'll have tomorrow, but the gospel call is for today. To repent today and not put off to tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, even now as we come to your table and we think of these truths and we think of the second coming and yes, horrific in nature, but yet knowing that in every way it is perfectly right and just, we understand who you are, an eternal God who is perfect and just, the creator. And we rightly put ourselves as sinful man, as rebellious creatures. We understand that. We understand that you are right and you are good to take back what is rightfully yours, to judge those who are wicked. And we stand amazed that you have seen fit to even save some through the good news of what Christ has done for us, that he died on the cross for our sin, that we might live. So encourage us this morning, even as we look at our own lives, maybe even a worthy question in light of the text as we sing together and look towards the elements of the bread and the cup and to think through, are we living in light of the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? And in ways in which we aren't, may Revelation 14 jar us in a way that calls us to live and renew our hearts and minds and lives in a way that it aligns with this truth and this reality of who you are, who Christ is, who your church is, and the role that we have, not only in each other's lives, but in the world around. Encourage us through this, even the blessings of seeing those saints in this time in the future who have been faithful even to the end. Lord, how much more for us, Lord, to remain faithful to you. No matter the cost, the consequence, the pressure, the trial. So encourage us in these truths this morning as we look to you. Please ask us in your son's name. Amen.